Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. Okay, so we are in John chapter 5 and... Somebody was either, I think, Alan or April said, so you're going to try and get through verse 18. So we'll see what happens. There's a lot to discuss and a, a lot of really neat things to look at. Uh, I'm, I'm excited about it uh, here tonight. Just to kind of recap on some things, we've seen Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana, the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. We've also examined Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about being born again. We've seen that man is condemned already due to unbelief, how we are to decrease so that he can increase. And we've also seen Jesus' discussion with the Samaritan woman, woman in Samaria, and how the whole city basically came to him, and they believed, not because of only what the woman had said, but because of what Jesus himself taught them and told them. And the Bible says that they asked him, will you stay with us? And he abode with them for a couple of days. And now... He comes from Galilee into Jerusalem during a Jewish feast. And so let's start in verse 1 of chapter 5. Okay. Verse 1 of chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So oftentimes when there is a feast and it's referred to as just the feast, it's talking about the Feast of Tabernacles. As far as the Old Testament goes, the only feast that's referred to as the feast is referring to Tabernacles. We don't know for certain that that's what's going on here, but one of the things that we can see, and this is probably the biggest reason that we have for thinking that it's Tabernacles that's being spoken of, is that we look in John chapter 6 and it says Passover is nigh. And then we get to John chapter 7 and it's Tabernacles. But Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. It's a pilgrimage feast. There was a couple different feasts in Judaism where you went up to Jerusalem. And the reason that a lot of people think that's tabernacles, and that's what I would lean towards, is because chapter 6 is Passover. The previous pilgrimage feast to Passover, the one that comes before Passover, would put it at tabernacles. Okay? Okay. Um, we don't have any specific um, information or 
or things that would lead us to believe specifically that it's tabernacles other than those two ideas, that it's a feast of the Jews, un unmentioned, and that it's the one before Passover as far as a feast where the Jewish people would go up to Jerusalem. Okay, so after this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the way, I think it's been mentioned before, but you always go up to Jerusalem. In the Bible, whenever it talks about going to Jerusalem, you're never going to go down to Jerusalem. Even if you're up north, you don't go down to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem because it's elevation. And also, I think that there's a stress of the biblical importance of Jerusalem. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing city in the scripture that is unparalleled as far as the importance that's placed upon it by God himself. Okay, so, now, there is at Jerusalem, by the sheep market, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, there's something here, and uh, I don't want you guys to go ahead and flip to the next page, because if you do, you're going to find out my, uh, my cliffhanger that I'm going to satiate at the end of the Bible study here. Um, about the name Bethesda and what it means. But don't get it confused with Bethsaida. You guys know those two different places in the Bible? Okay. So um, it's interesting, in English, sometimes it's easier to get things mixed up. And in Hebrew, it's a little bit more cut and dry, sometimes. Like, like for instance, in, in English we have Elijah and Elisha. But in Hebrew, it's Eliyahu and Elisha. They're a lot more different. But then we have um, Bethesda, and Bethsaida. Both of those sound very similar in English, but in Hebrew, it's Bethesda and Bethsida. Those don't sound as close. They're still a little close. Bethesda and Bethsida. Hello. Good to have you. So we're in John chapter 5. <laughs> Looking at verse number 2 of John chapter 5. Um, now, I will tell you what Bethsida means. Um, Bethsida, as we would say in English. Bethsida in Galilee is the area known as the house of the hunters or the house of the fishes. Fishermen, sorry. House of fishermen or house of hunters is what Bethsida means. That's in Galilee. Um, that's where a lot of the disciples came from. I think it was maybe Nathaniel, or maybe it's even Peter and Andrew. Although they dwelt in Capernaum, they were from Bethsida. Okay, um, Bethsaida, as we'd say in English. But this is not Bethsaida, this is Bethesda, Bethesda, okay? Now there's five porches. Now I'm going to try and describe to you, I described this to my kids the other day. When we think of porches, what do we think of? We think of like, you know, somebody's house with a front porch. <laughs> or maybe a back porch that's kind of an enclosed thing. It's kind of hard for us to imagine five porches. Like what is this place that has five porches? Okay, I'm going to try and show you here with an example by using a book, okay? So, pretend this is a bird's eye view of Bethesda, okay? In Bethesda, there's these pools, okay, by the sheep market. You're looking at a bird's eye view of the pools, and there's five porches. I'm going to show them to you. You ready? Porch number one, porch number two, porch number three, porch number four, and porch number five going up the center. Okay, that's what Bethesda, Bethesda, the five porches, that's what they are. They're kind of a covered walkway area 
completely encompassing this rectangular pool, and there's one that goes down the center. One, two, three, four, five. Okay? All right. So there's five porches there at uh, the sheep market at the pool, um, Bethesda. In these, and we're going to read verses 3 through 7, we're going to go back, okay? In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, let me stop there for a second. This passage here in verse 4, talking about the legend of the angel. Um, we're not told that this is absolutely gospel truth or that it's a legend um, that was believed by these people. But it certainly was believed by these people. Now, there was a, there was a Hellenistic, a, a, a Greek um, mindset. And what was the guy's name? Like Eleopas or something like that? Anyway, um, I did a study on this a while ago, and I wish it was more fresh in my mind. Um, but as a side note, there was this Greek uh, guy, and he was, I think he was supposed to be a Greek god, okay, like a false god, and he was the god of healing, okay, and his symbol was snake. Now, if you guys have seen, like on, on um, ambulances and, and, and stuff, they have those you know, the pole with the snakes. And I always thought, hey, that's the Moses thing. You know, lifting up the snake upon the pole, look and live, you can be healed. I, I, I always thought that that's what it was. Now, I don't know for sure if it's tied to that or if, if you look on Wikipedia about this uh, Eleopas or whatever, he has these things called Eleopons, which are healing pools, okay, according to the Greek religion. And um, anyway... Uh, there's some things having to do with a lot of things. You may be familiar with some of this, Alan, in, 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 in medical practices and, and um, going to medical school. There's lots of things that you learn that have at least their etymological, their name, origin in Greek. Like, um, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is supposed to be related to something. Um, and then a lot of the different studies, like, um, uh, anyway, I'm going way out of my... <laughs> wheelhouse here. But anyway, so there was this Roman Greek um, emphasis. Hello. Hey, hey. Sorry. Welcome. No problem. Good to have you. Absolutely. We're in John chapter 5. And so, um, anyway, there's some that believe when they talk about, at least in the world, we talk about the origin of the snake and the poles and stuff on the sides of ambulances. It's relating to this Aleopon or Aleopus guy and his healing pools and his power of healing and his symbol being the snake. Anyway, apparently in the Greek culture, this place was tied to that, that thinking as well. So uh, John tells us here that there was an angel at some point, a certain season, Troubled the water, in verse 4. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. So there's a whole lot of impotent folk lying around, hoping that this would happen. Hoping that they can be healed by this angel that would come and, 
and, and supposedly stir the water. And a certain man was there, and we're going to learn a little bit about this man, verse 5, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Okay, do we have anybody in here that's thirty-eight? Okay. Not in this group. <laughs> Is there anybody in here that has a child that's thirty-eight? Okay. Uh, that's what I was thinking, but we'll just we'll just let that that ring. Um, but anyway, so this th this man, it's Mark telling us to behave. Um, anyway, this man had an infirmity. Okay, a sickness, a disease, a a a. Um, ailment for 38 years. Okay, we read in the Gospels about the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years. But can you imagine this man for 38 years having this, this ailment, this infirmity? And when Jesus saw him lie, okay, so Jesus is there in Jerusalem, and the sheep market, the pool of Bethesda is there in Jerusalem. And Jesus is walking by and he sees this man. And it says there's a great number of impotent folk lying there, but he sees this man specifically. And he knew that he had been a long time in that case. Why? Because he's God. He knew. He knew this man's whole story better than he did. And so he sees this man and he knew that he had been in the case a long time in that case. He saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Now this is interesting. And it's, 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 it's almost kind of comical but not exactly. It's like kind of sad because it's so true. The response that this man has when Jesus said, will you be made whole? We can see that response in the rest of the world. Jesus is saying, come to me, all you labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. And this man, much like the rest of the population of America and the whole rest of the world, Jesus is saying, come to me. I've paid it all. Uh, he wept over Jerusalem because they would not come and be gathered under his wings like a hen gathers her chickens. I was thinking about that the other day. I, I've talked about that. I've preached about it a number of different times, you know, when, when Jesus wept. You know, he wept over Lazarus when he knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. It says he saw the Jews therefore weeping, and it says Jesus said, where have you laid him? And he came near, and, he, and Jesus wept. <coughs> Think about that for a second. This is, this is God. This is the creator of everything. The one that holds it all together by, the, by, by his power. And he's overcome with emotion to the point of physically weeping. And so it says he came over to Jerusalem. And when he beheld the city, he wept over it. If, if, if we would think about that, and those that are, you know, in the anti-Semitic replacement theology crowd, if they would get a hold of that one passage and realize the, the implications of what that means, and how Jesus feels about his people, um, it, would change, it would change their hearts. But anyway, much like the rest of this country, the rest of this world, lost people, okay, people that don't know the Lord, oftentimes they don't want to be helped or they don't want to be helped in the right way. And they, um, anyway, listen, listen to what this man says. Jesus says, will you be made whole? The man answered him, sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Now, stop there. Jesus says, will you be made whole? This man responds by telling Jesus what he thinks he needs. I mean, Jesus has the power, and we'll see in the next verse what Jesus does to heal this man. 
completely and totally and instantly. And the man's response before knowing what Jesus is and who, and who he is and what he can do, I don't have anybody to put me in the water. You know? And it just, it's, it's, it's kind of comical, but it kind of breaks your heart at the same time because it's so true and it perfectly pictures the people in this world. You know, you and I, before we came to Christ, thinking, well, I just need more money or I, or I just need, you know, a significant other in my life or I just need, you know, whatever it might be um, to fill that void. Um, you know, Jesus, if you'll just help me with this, then, then I'll listen to what you really have to say. And, um, and we ought not be that way. He is there ready to completely and totally solve our deepest, most important, most unsolvable problem and issue in our life, that of a relationship with God. And so often that gets, okay, okay, but let me tell you about this first, Jesus. You need to fix, you know, my marriage or whatever it might be. Um, anyway, if, 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 if this man who knew who he was talking to, he says, I, I don't have somebody, can, can you put me in the water? <laughs> you know, so I can, when the angel comes, can you put me in the water? Talking to Jesus. And Jesus says unto him in verse 8, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately, immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. Now, here comes the, um, the radio theater, dun, dun, dun. And the same day was the Sabbath day. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. So the plot thickens, and we are going to see some amazing truths come about simply because Jesus perfectly, uh, uh, he purposefully chose to do this on this day in this manner. Um, okay. So verses 10 through 13, we see the Sabbath scenario. Verse number 10. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, okay, they see this guy, and he, you know, he gets up and he's carrying his, his, his bed, which was probably just a bunch of different sheets maybe, some blankets, maybe a cushion, some kind of a makeshift pad, okay, that was his bed. It wasn't, you know, a mattress from one of these, you know, first century mattress firm kind of thing. It was just what he was laying. And so he's carrying his, his stuff. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, it is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. He answered them, He that made me whole the same said unto me, Take up thy bed and walk. Then asked they him, What man is it that said unto thee, Take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Now, a um, couple things that we learn from this passage. Would the Jewish people have had as much of a problem if it was a Roman person carrying a bed? It was evident that this man was Jewish, okay? And that is clearly seen in the response that the Jewish people, you can't carry your bed today, it's the Sabbath day. Um, it's not lawful. Who, who told you to do this? And so it's interesting that their focus, they completely miss the fact that this man was healed from an infirmity that caused him to be lame, to not even be able to walk. For 38 years, he's instantly healed in a moment, and they are so focused in on you're breaking the law. 
Um, anyway, we're going to get into some, some things in a little bit uh, later about the Sabbath, just a couple of minutes actually. Um, when I was in Pensacola, I went to Pensacola Christian College, and we had some, some different Christian services there, what we called Christian services, where the student, it was like a student-led outreach, and there was a number of various groups, okay, and there was a Bible club, and there was, you know, some different things. Eventually, um, because of the help of Ken Symes, you guys know who Ken Symes is, right? Um, he was the director before Mark, and he is right now in Tampa, Florida. He's our field representative and he's a missionary with Jewish Awareness Ministries. Anyway, um, while he was the director, I was in uh, Bible college, and he came down and helped us get a Jewish outreach approved by the administration. Um, but anyway, one of the outreaches that they had there was called Seville Square in Pensacola, Florida, and we would go out and we would be basically talking to people on the street, handing out tracts, in person, one-on-one, -on -one, to the people in, in Seville Square in Pensacola, Florida. And it was kind of like an evening type of a ministry. And there was a guy that was with us whose name shall be, um, you know, anonymous to protect whatever. But um, he was there, and we came and we were talking to some people that were on like a, a stoop, you know, on, uh, in front of a door, in front of a doorstep. And there were these kids, and they were probably, I don't know, 13, 14. And we handed them a tract, talking to them about the Lord. And the kid said, you know what? He said, my brother, my brother is in a Christian band. And so you would think, okay, this is a segue to talk to him more about the Lord. He's open or whatever. This guy who was with us from the college in our group, was very pharisaical, okay? When he heard the words Christian band, anyway, his response to this boy, okay, we're talking to this boy about the Lord, trying to give him a tract. And the boy says, oh, my, my brother's in a Christian band, and this guy says, I'm sorry. Because, you know, their standards are, you know, against certain kinds of music or whatever. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's a similar, I mean, it's not exactly the same as what's going on here. But they completely miss the miraculous. They completely miss the truth. They make the word of God void by their traditions. And that's exactly what so-and-so was doing in Seville Square. That kid immediately just shut down, you know, and we lost that opportunity. Um, that has to do with, I guess, Christian immaturity. People being uh, so consumed with standards and, and other things that they... Uh, anyway, okay. So, they're upset. And they don't know who told this man to carry his bed because the man didn't know that it was Jesus. Uh, there was a multitude of people there, and Jesus just walked through the midst of them and kind of got lost in the crowd. Uh, from this man's vision. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple. So another, another clue that this man was indeed, he was Jewish. Okay? And said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now this is interesting. Um, by the way, let's, let's look at verse 15 as well. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus that made him whole. <laughs> 
So um, anyway, Jesus tells the man to turn from his sinful practices. We see something similar when Jesus talks to the woman that was caught in adultery. Okay, and he sends the accusers away one by one. Um, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. You know that scenario, and he ends up telling the woman, he says, "By faith have made thee whole. Go and sin no more." And it's a similar situation of what Jesus tells this man here. And um, the man's response is not one that you would think of somebody that is gratefully receptive of the healing that they've just encountered um, by meeting the Messiah in person. He just almost in the same sentence, he goes over, it's Jesus that did it, you know. Um, anyway, so we can take from this passage that the man's infirmity that he's had for 38 years, we don't know exactly why or how, but according to what Jesus tells him, it's a result of some sin that he had in his life. I don't know if he was a drunkard and fell out a window, or if, and there I go, Bob, on the wine-bimber thing. I had to bring it in there. He told, he, he, he told Mark, he texted Mark, saying, Dan's doing talking about wine-bibbers again. <laughs> and he showed me the text, so, before we even got started. But anyway, um, we don't know what this man's uh, sin was that brought this illness into his life. Maybe it was the Lord trying to get a hold of him in some way, shape, or form, you know. And yet, after he's healed, we, you know, you know those, those you know, ten that were, that were healed of leprosy. And only one of them came back and glorified God and thanked God. And by the way, this man was a Samaritan, it says. Um, the people that were healed of leprosy by Jesus, the nine, that did not come back, that did not glorify or thank God, they just kind of went on their own way we see a very similar spirit in this man. Very similar spirit. Um, not only was he not thankful, but he goes and he turns to the Jewish religious authorities and says, that's the guy that did it. Um, and it's, it's, it's kind, of a, kind of a sad situation. Um, but we see something amazing, an amazing truth that we're going to try and glean here tonight through both this passage in John 5, and we're also going to look in Matthew uh, as well. And I think it's uh, Matthew, yeah, Matthew 12 we're going to look at as well. Um, but interesting thought. Okay, so this man, he is accused by the Jewish people of breaking the Sabbath in verse number 10. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. And then after that, he says that it was Jesus that told him to do it. When we come down to verse number 16, after this man that was healed tells the Jewish people that, yes, it was Jesus that did it. It says in verse number 16, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, we see a couple of different instances where this same thing occurred and is recorded for us in Scripture where Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath day. And those that are around there that are, you know, in the more religious 
crowd, the more pharisaical, rabbinical type of crowd, they're just incensed. They're, they can't believe it. They're just so upset that he would have the audacity to heal somebody of an infirmity on the Sabbath day. Not only that, but that he tells this man, take up your bed and walk. Now, do you think, I mean, Jesus knew that this man had had this infirmity for 38 years. Jesus knew the intricate details of this man's life that were not broadcasted, okay, because he's God. Do you think Jesus knew, oh, it's Saturday? Of course he did. Could he have just said, you know, rise and walk, you're whole? He could have done that, but he didn't. He purposefully chose to say, take up your bed and walk. Um, there's some amazing truths that we're going to see here. Okay. Here we find a very curious instance where Jesus is accused of breaking the Sabbath and causing someone else to break the Sabbath as well. We learned that it was the Sabbath day when Jesus healed this man and told him to walk and carry his bed. Now, I have a note here at the bottom. We have this book in our library. Uh, from what I've looked at it and studied through it, it's a very good book. A large part of this Sabbath study that I'm going to go into, and my, I had a professor in college he taught the book of Genesis, and he so badly wanted to talk to us about the Sabbath. He said, I couldn't find anywhere else to put it in. So when God rested on the seventh day, he said, now we're going to go into my Sabbath excursus, is what he called it. And so this is my Sabbath excursus. And it's not, I'm not stretching to get there, because this passage focuses on the Sabbath. And um, what I'd like to talk about for some of the remainder of the time, I hopefully we'll get through verse 18, I think we will, um, is that uh, what the Sabbath means, the Sabbath according to Jesus, is what we're going to try and learn tonight. Um, because obviously going through this passage, we see that Jesus has some viewpoints about the Sabbath that are probably not taught rarely anywhere. Um, and you get all kinds, all kinds of mixed up teachings on the Sabbath. And I'm very thankful for Mark's teaching. I'm not going to really rehash any of what he's done, but I'm certainly not going to contradict any of it uh, because I, I'm right on with him on the same page. Um, there was a conference we went to in Hamburg, New York, and it was a Bible conference. Um, and we were representing our ministry there, trying to get support because there was a number of different churches that were there. It was kind of like a tent revival. And they had a preacher that got up there, and he was one of the keynote preachers of the group. I mean, he wasn't one of the main people on the docket, but he was like the speaker of honor because he had been in ministry for so many years, and he was this revered man. And he talked about how, and I think I've told this to Mark before, and he just rolls his eyes. Um, when he was a boy, and this man was probably in his 70s or 80s, okay? When he was a boy, it was a Sunday afternoon, and he was, you know, after getting home from church, I think maybe his dad was a preacher, and he, he went outside and he, he walked into his, in, went into his treehouse, and he snagged his toe on a nail that was sticking up in his treehouse. So being an ingenuitive boy that he was, he went and, and got the hammer, figured I'm going to, you know, nail that nail down. And he got in so much trouble from his father 
because his father says it's the Sabbath day. Remember, the Sa this is at an independent Baptist meeting. People that you would think would know better. Um, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Um, anyway, um, he, he just derided this boy and uh, punished him greatly for stubbing his toe and fixing the nail that was sticking up in his treehouse on a Sunday afternoon. When we look through Scripture and we see Jesus' viewpoint of these things, it should open our eyes because it gives us a vastly different perspective than what we would hear from some other people here, there, and everywhere. Whether it's the Seventh-day Adventist crowd or the Independent Baptists or whoever it may be. And by the way, the guy that wrote this book is he, he was part of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Okay, so he has this teaching on, uh, it's called the Sabbath in Christ. And um, like I said, we got it in our library. Uh, okay, so anyway, these points I've borrowed from him. Number one, and there's five things here. I think I have more than five. Yep, I have seven. But there's these items that we can glean and kind of categorically list of what we know about this passage. Number one, this was not a life-threatening illness. Okay, so regarding both the healing and the carrying of the bed, this man wasn't going to die in five minutes if Jesus didn't heal him. It wasn't a life-threatening illness. Okay, you can imagine if somebody is walking on a cliffside and it's the Sabbath day, and the person's going to fall off the cliff unless you reach down and, 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 and save them and lift them up out of that ditch or whatever it might be, then that is an okay thing to do on the Sabbath day, according to the Jewish religious authority. But this man, he's had 38 years. One more day is not going to kill him, or a matter of hours is not going to kill him. So this was not a life-threatening illness. Jesus could have easily waited until the next day if he wanted to. Okay. Number two, this man's bed constituted a burden which was forbidden to be carried according to Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 21 and 22. I got this written down here. Thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, Neither do ye any work, but hallow ye the Sabbath day, as I have commanded your fathers. So, Jesus could have picked another day, but he didn't. And this man's burden, uh, this man's bed was constituting something that was forbidden in Jeremiah. Number three, there was no logical reason, according to man's reasoning, for this man to carry his bed that day. And... Just so you know, we're, we're lining these things up so we can knock them down, so we can show you what I like to call a punchline. We've got a couple of them in this, uh, in this lesson here uh, to bring everything to a head and then to show you Jesus' purpose. And it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing truth of the Scripture. Number four, we can deduce that Jesus purposefully chose to heal this man on the Sabbath day and deliberately asked him to do something which would be considered a violation of Sabbath law. Okay? 
Any questions, comments, discussion so far? Unless it's something I'm going to answer in the next couple of sentences. <laughs> okay. Don't be afraid if we, you know, if you have something to, to ask a question about. Number five. Now this is interesting. This gives us some more light on this situation. The Greek gives us even more additional insight into this passage. Listen to this. In verse 18, we read, because he not only had broken the Sabbath. Okay, verse number 18, therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath. Okay, and we'll get to the rest in a minute. Okay, I don't want to get away from that. We're focusing on the Sabbath portion of verse 18. That he had broken the Sabbath. Had broken is in the continuous tense in the Greek. The Greek implying that Jesus was repeatedly involved in such activity. So when it says had broken in our Bibles, not only had he broken the Sabbath, the stress is not only had he been continually breaking the Sabbath, but it's kind of wordy to try and put that all in, in English, but that's the meaning. Not only had he been continuously breaking the Sabbath, also, this verb for broken, verb that's translated broken here in verse number 18, to loose, is the verb all seminary students learn first. I took one semester of Greek, okay, enough to be dangerous. And I know this verb. It's pretty much the only word I know in Greek. And it's the word luo, okay, meaning to loose or to destroy. I thought that was really strange, you know, as a seminary kid, Went behind the ears, learning my first Greek word, and I learned, and it's to loose, meaning to kind of like to let go. But it also is translated with the idea of to destroy, to break. That is the word here that is used as broken. It can also be interpreted as invalidate, to set aside, and even to destroy. There's a couple of passages here that I want us to, to read. Um, let's turn over, keep your finger there in John chapter 5, but turn back to just a couple of pages to John 2. Now when you use um, the original languages, when you look back into the Hebrew and the Greek, it is especially helpful if the passage that you're comparing it with is by the same author, because it shows that he used that same Greek word in a different context. So John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered and said unto them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That is the same word, luo, that is being used in verse 18 of chapter 5. All right, now I'm going to turn over, and I'm just going to read this for you. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to turn there and read it for you. In 1 John 3, now who wrote 1 John? John. The same John, by the way. So it, it has the same stress, the same um, value as far as understanding his perspective of these words. John, 1 John 3, in verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Is, is, is Jesus just going to kind of set aside the works of the devil? Is he going to break the... No, he's going to utterly destroy 
completely obliterate the works of the devil. So when these people here in John chapter 5 and verse 18, you can turn back there now, when they said that he had broken the Sabbath, two things about this word. It's in the continuous tense. Not only had he been continuously breaking the Sabbath, but it can also be interpreted as to destroy, to invalidate. He's continually invalidating our Sabbath laws. He's destroying the Sabbath, is their, is, is their perspective. And so we see that not only is this an isolated instance where, whoops, Jesus messed up and made a mistake and decided to heal this man on the Sabbath instead of on Sunday or Monday, um, and he forgot and accidentally asked him to carry his bed when he really shouldn't have? That's not the case at all. He chose on purpose, deliberately, to heal this man on the Sabbath. He chose deliberately, purposefully, to ask this man to take up his bed and carry it on the Sabbath. And he had been doing this, and we'll see a couple of other instances in Scripture where Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath day. But according to what these Jewish people said and what they'd been hearing is that this man is continually doing this kind of thing, healing people on the Sabbath, you know? And... Uh, there's an instance we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 12 <clears throat> that is another one. But we're going to look at that one in a little bit of uh, more detail. <clears throat> okay. So what is Jesus doing? What is his purpose? What is his, what is his reason behind these actions? Number six. There was a man who was commanded to be stoned to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. You guys remember that? Okay, that's in the book of Numbers, chapter 15. You can turn there on your own if you like at some point. Um, but we're just going to mention it in passing, in reference, Numbers 15. His actions were probably done to meet some kind of human need. The man in John 5 didn't need to carry his bed that day. I'm kind of lining these things up to kind of explode the truth upon you, okay, about Jesus and what he's doing. Um, but in Numbers 15, that man was stoned to death by the command of God for what he had done. And what he had done was probably for his own well-being, for the well-being of his family, albeit he was breaking the Sabbath in doing so. And the man that Jesus heals in John chapter 5, he didn't need to carry his bed. Now, see, those people that would want to kind of put Jesus in a, in, in, a, in a tough spot, in a tough situation, would look at it as Jesus is not in control. This is a problem. I mean, you know, he has this man, and he, it's the Sabbath day, and whoops, he forgot that it was the Sabbath day, and he asked the man to carry his bed. And that's not the case at all. From the onset, way, way, way back from the beginning, Jesus purposed in his heart, that on this day he would heal this man, and guess what? He's gonna, I'm going to ask you to carry your bed, and it's the Sabbath day. See what happens. I have a purpose. Okay? Jesus is doing this purposefully. Jesus' response, number 7, in verse 17, begins to show us, begins to show us the answer to the whole Sabbath controversy. Okay? We looked at verse 16. They were upset. They sought to slay him because he'd done these things on the Sabbath day. But listen to verse 17. And this is the beginning. This is the tip of the iceberg of the answer. Verse number 17. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, or 
until now. And I work. Okay? So when Jesus is responding to them, it's amazing. I mean, you know, politicians here today, they would say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, it was an accident. Or they would say, well, that's technically, and they would kind of work their way out of it some legal matter, you know, working through the Jewish law code and, 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 and finding a loophole and saying it's okay. How does Jesus respond? Is my father worketh hitherto? My father worketh until now, and I work. Okay? Um, that is the point. That is the point of this passage. That is the point of what we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 12. And by the end of tonight, hopefully it will be driven home in your mind what the Christian, not the Christian Sabbath, but the Sabbath in Christ. What does the Sabbath mean in light of Jesus, in light of Christ? What does the Sabbath mean according to Jesus? That's what we're going to look at. Okay. Turn in your Bibles. And I'm doing good time-wise. I'm not used to teaching for like a really long time. I mean, this is not a really long time, but usually, you know, my sermons are like 20 minutes to half an hour. And uh, anyway, I want to make sure I had enough ammunition uh, for tonight. Um, and if we, if we get to the time of being done, I'm shortly going to be continuing. Uh, I think when, when Mark's in Israel in April, um, I'll probably be continuing again in, this, in, this, uh, in John chapter 5. Okay, turn over to Exodus 20. I'm going to read a couple of verses. Now, when I say Exodus 20, your mind should immediately think what? The Ten, the ten Commandments, yep. Okay, so we're going to read a couple of verses, starting in verse 8. Exodus 20, in verse 8, and we're going to read through verse 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested on the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay, so that's what we have. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy stranger, nor thy manservant, maidservant, so on, so on, so on. Now, I'm going to read to you the rabbinical list of prohibited activities that you are not to do on the Sabbath day. Are you ready? I gotta take a deep breath here. Planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing slash extraction, winnowing, sorting slash purification, grinding, sifting, kneading slash amalgamation, cooking slash baking, shearing, scouring, laundering, beating slash combining wool, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two loops, weaving, separating two threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, flaying slash skinning, curing slash preserving, smoothing, scoring, measured cutting, writing, erasing, building, demolition, extinguishing a fire, igniting a fire, applying a finishing touch, transferring between domains. Now this is something that in Orthodox Judaism today is upheld. And it probably was there in Jesus' day. Okay? Turn to Matthew 12. This is going to be fun. 
Okay. Matthew chapter 12. And I think, okay, we are going to go back to John 5. If you have a bookmark with you, before we're done, we'll go back and we'll finish up the last couple of verses there in John chapter 5. Okay, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Verse number 1 of Matthew chapter 12. This is one such instance where Jesus was, quote-unquote, destroying the Sabbath day, okay? Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn. And his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. Again. The first point we have here is the offense. This is what happens. And you have it written there on your sheet. They had a twofold offense. They were guilty of reaping and they were guilty of threshing slash extraction. And these are the definitions from Judaism today. Okay, um, rooted in the rabbinical law. Definition of reaping, severing a plant from its source of growth. They plucked the ears of corn. Okay, removing all or part of a plant from its source of growth is reaping. Rabbinically, it is forbidden to climb a tree for fear that it may lead to one tearing off a branch. It is also forbidden rabbinically to ride an animal as one may unthinkingly detach a stick to hit the animal with. Anyway, so that's reaping. Okay, it's forbidden rabbinically. Number two, threshing slash extraction. Definition, removal of an undesirable outer from a desirable inner. Now, it doesn't say there that they were shucking the corn, but they probably did. I don't think they would bite through the corn husks. Maybe they did, but if they did, in fact, shuck the corn, they'd be guilty as well of threshing slash extraction. This is a large topic of study. It refers to any productive extraction and includes juicing of fruits and vegetables and wringing uh, out of cloths, desirable fluids, as the juice or water inside the fruit is considered desirable for these, pr for these purposes, while the pulp of the fruit would be undesirable, such as squeezing, whatever that word is, is forbidden unless certain rules are applied. The wringing of undesirable water out of clothes may come under the law of melibane, scouring slash laundering. Then you've got a different animal there, okay? And so Jesus said, you strain at a gnat, you swallow a camel, you make the word of God void by your traditions, and you're just so, you don't see the forest for the trees. You know, you're, you're, you're missing everything because you're so focused on every single little law here, there, and everywhere. Okay, the reaction. Oh, and by the way, I have a scripture passage here that is the only thing that I can find that is related to this threshing extraction thing. Exodus 34, 21, six days thou shalt work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest. In earing time and in harvest thou shalt rest. Okay, that's basically saying, do we have any farmers here? People that do farm, have farm, garden? Okay, a little bit, a little bit of gardening. Okay, if there comes like, you know, you, got, you have a harvest, and it's almost ready, but, well, and nowadays you'll have a forecast on your phone. You'll say, oh, it's going to, you know, frost tomorrow or a thunderstorm or something crazy. A, a tornado's coming through, but today it's bright and sunny. I'll go ahead and harvest. Oh, wait, it's the Sabbath day. That's what this is talking about. In earing time and in harvest, you're going to keep the Sabbath. 
But there's no specific rule against you cannot remove a desirable inner from an undesirable outer. That is a rabbinical tradition. Anyway, that's what they're so upset about. Uh, this refers to wanting to plow or reap your crops on Saturday because of good weather. So the reaction, verse 2. When the Pharisees saw it, when they saw what? Jesus' disciples walking through the corn, plucking corn, and starting to eat. They said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Now, this is, this is a really neat instance here. Jesus' response. But he said unto them, verse 3 through 5, Have ye not read what David did? when he was hungered, and they that were with him, how he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat, neither for them that were with him, but only for the priest. Have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Did you guys ever think about that? The priests in the temple, they got to work on Saturday. They got to kindle fires. They got to carry loads. They got to do all kinds of stuff. And yet they are blameless because they are in the temple. They are doing the service of God. They are doing the work of God. Okay. The punchline, part A. Okay, I mentioned there's a couple of different punchlines here. I'm going to kind of give it to you in, in doses, okay? Verse 6. Oh, by the way, I'm getting ahead of myself. That reference for David is in 1 Samuel. We're not going to go there for time's sake, 1 Samuel 21. But you can read. He ate the showbread. Okay from the house of God that was forbidden for him to eat, but it was allowed because, you know, it was a okay thing to do <laughs> in that scenario, in that situation. He was never derided. He was never uh, chastised by God. He was never, you know. Um, and then the second example is the priest in the temple to kindle a fire. Exodus 35.3 uh, is an example of that. All right, so here's the first part of the punchline, verse number six, but I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. This is, this is the emphasis, this is the driving force of Jesus doing what he's doing. He's trying to get a point across, not about this law or that law or nitpicking what I can do, what I can't do. He's trying to say, this is all about me. And there is a reason that Every single one of those Ten Commandments is reiterated and taught by Jesus in the New Testament, except for the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We're going to find something very interesting about the Sabbath that is taught in the New Testament that puts it all together for us as Christians. So hold on and try not to fall asleep, and we'll get there. Okay? Uh oh. <laughs> Okay, now, I have this book. This book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, it's written by Rabbi Jacob Neusner. He is not a believer in the slightest, okay? Um, he translated an English version of the Talmud, which is the Jewish book of law, the rabbinical laws. Um, anyway, um, he writes this book called A Rabbi Talks with Jesus, and his whole, his whole uh, fictional scenario that he's come up with is, if I was there in Bible times, and I was able to converse and dialogue with Jesus, here's what I'd say to him. And you see on this cover, he's like this, and Jesus is like this. 
they tried to paint Jesus as a scared puppy, and this guy's, you know, telling him how it is. I'll tell you. All right, so hold on. I'm going to read some of his book. Um, and you'll, you'll find out why in a little bit. This is from page 68, 69. Rabbi talks with Jesus. And by the way, he's talking in this book, in this chapter, specifically about this passage in this instance. Jesus is breaking the Sabbath. In fact, let me give you the title. The title of this, the title of this chapter is Remember the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy versus, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Anyway, so he has a point of view and he's going to give it to us, okay? To understand what he says, and this is referring to Jesus' statement, I tell you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Have you not read that the priests, they profane the Sabbath daily or weekly, and they're blameless. But I tell you that in this place is one greater than the temple. This is his response. To understand what he says and to grasp how surprising I find it, you have to know that the temple and the world beyond the temple form mirror images one of another. What we do in the temple is the opposite of what we do everywhere else. The Torah is explicit that sacrifices are to be offered on that day. For example, an additional offering for the Sabbath is prescribed in Numbers 28 verses 9 through 10 and also verses uh, 3 through 8 of the same chapter show uh, the showbread of the temple was replaced on the Sabbath day. That's also uh, cited for us in Leviticus 24.8, uh, if you're writing any of this down. So it was clear to everybody that what was not to be done outside of the temple in secular space was required to be done in holy space, in the temple itself. When therefore Jesus says that something greater than the temple is here, he can only mean that he and his disciples may do on the Sabbath what they do because they stand in the place of the priests in the temple. The holy place has shifted, now being formed by the circle made up of the master and his disciples. Now this, this, this rabbi, although he completely disagrees with our point of view, he says some things that are like, okay, he's almost getting it, and he says some things that are kind of a little bit off. But uh, here, let me continue. One more paragraph here. What troubles me, therefore, okay, this is what troubles this rabbi about this passage. What troubles me, therefore, is not that the disciples do not obey one of the rules of the Sabbath. I don't care that they're plucking corn. That doesn't bother me. That is trivial and beside the point. What captures my attention is Jesus' statement that at stake in their actions is not the Sabbath, but the temple, a truly fresh formulation of matters. His claim then concerns not whether or not the Sabbath is to be sanctified, but where and what is the temple, the place where things are done on the Sabbath that elsewhere are not to be done at all. Not only so, but just as on the Sabbath it is permitted to place on the altar the food that is offered up to God, so Jesus' disciples are permitted to prepare their food on the Sabbath. Again, a stunning shift indeed. Now, he's kind of, Jewish people think very physically minded, very worldly minded, you know, and, and um, he's thinking that these men eating this corn, and Jesus says, you know, the, the, the priests profane the you know, Sabbath by offerings and stuff on the temple, and they're, and they're blameless, but one, I tell you that one in this place is greater than the temple, is here. And he's not saying, 
my disciples are the new priests and they're eating corn is analogous to the offerings that would be made. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I am greater than the temple. Now, a little bit later in this book, I'm going to read it, another passage in a little bit. He gets a little bit closer, a little bit closer to a correct understanding of what Jesus is saying. But I'm just kind of slowly paving the way there. The prophet's words in verse number 7, Jesus continues, But if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would, would, ha would not have condemned the guiltless. Okay, and that's a passage in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus said, if you knew what this meant, you wouldn't have condemned the guiltless. This is a little bit of a shift to them condemning the disciples, and Jesus saying you wouldn't condemn them if you understood this passage. And so, um, the reason that this is brought up, Hosea 6.6, 6, this passage about I will have mercy rather than sacrifice, um, if you would know what that means, that's a very anti-pharisaical passage. You know, this whole list, okay? If you would have known what this means, if I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is saying, um, your whole perspective on this thing is wrong. Your whole outlook on what the Sabbath is and what it means, and most importantly, who I am, is way off base. And I'm trying to get you back on track here. There is one in this place that's greater than the temple. If you would know what it means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you, you wouldn't have condemned my disciples. Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. The punchline part B, okay? Verse number 8. Listen to this, everybody. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. There's more than one reason why... Nine out of ten of the commandments are reiterated and basically recommanded by Jesus in the teachings of the New Testament, except for the Sabbath day. There's a reason for that. It's on purpose. Because the Sabbath means something. And I'm going to try and get us to understand what that is. All right. Did you have enough time to catch your breath from this guy or for your blood pressure to come down a little bit? All right, I'm going to read another passage. Either remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, or the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, but not both. Okay? He's looking at this passage that we just read, Jesus' statement, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Once we put the issue in these simple terms, then the solution is obvious. Jesus does not propose to abolish but to fulfill the Torah, and also, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so he's saying these two statements. Jesus does not propose to abolish the Torah, but to fulfill it. And Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. I'd say amen to both of those statements. Yeah, you got that right. Okay. <laughs> and then he says this. Then in keeping the Sabbath in the way which Jesus represents it, we fulfill the Torah. Now he's, he's kind of getting off again. He's thinking about... Okay, if Jesus is the Sabbath, then we need to fulfill the Sabbath and keep the Sabbath in Jesus' way. That's not, that's not what he's teaching here. Um, okay. And since his way so radically differs from my way, it is clear that we are hearing different voices from Sinai. Wait a second. Okay. He for his part and I for mine. Any other conclusion treats trivial 
What is a stunning confrontation the Christ of faith is speaking here. All right, now. Oh, wait, I have one more, one more sentence. Jesus' claim to authority is at issue, okay, is what he says. Jesus' claim to authority is at issue, is what he says. So from Rabbi Neusner's perspective, and I would say that you'd ask any other rabbi, they'd have a similar perspective of this passage if they were even familiar with it. They'd be like, okay, Jesus is telling us to do something that's radically different. You need to get the point across. You need to understand that the one that is speaking is God himself. He is the voice from Sinai. You are not hearing different voices from Sinai, but he is speaking of the same voice, but in human flesh. And if those two kind of double images would line up, you would see a full picture. You know what I mean? So, the core of Jesus' message. In verse 8, we just read, The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath day. Back in, in, in chapter 11, and this is, this is amazing. Hopefully, I pray that this will bring these passages into a perspective in your mind that you'll never be able to forget. Just the previous chapter... Verse number 25 of chapter 11. Look at verse 25 through 27. This talks about who gets it. Jacob Neusner, okay, this rabbi, he doesn't get it. But Jesus is going to say, by the way, who's going to get it? And he tells us previously to this encounter. Verse 25 of chapter 11. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. He's saying that Jacob Neusner does not know the Father. He may claim to know the God of Sinai as he speaks of him, but he does not. No man knows the Father save the Son. And to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. And then we see, and this is, this is amazing, verse 28. Just before this happened, just before they walked through the you know, field of corn, Jesus says this in verse 28 of chapter 11. I call this the best Sabbath in the world. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know what the Hebrew word for rest is? Shabbat. Sabbath. Shabbat. Take my yoke upon you, verse 29, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest. Shabbat unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see how people that are, okay, all right, I'll tell you a little story. The rabbi that taught my Hebrew class was Orthodox rabbi in Cleveland. And he went out, and he was going, I guess, I guess it was on a Saturday, and they were shopping. He was shopping for something. I guess it was allowed. I don't know. Um, but he ran into some people. Um, who were obviously not Jewish in appearance anyway, and yet they were dressed up in their dress clothes. And he asked them something of, oh, have you just come from you know, such and such? And they said, oh, no, we keep the Sabbath the same day that Jesus did. 
you know, so they were Seventh-day Adventists. But the rabbi, okay, the Orthodox rabbi that taught my Hebrew class, he thought that that was just, that's amazing, that's wonderful, you know. They keep the Sabbath day the same day that Jesus did. They don't have any of this Sunday nonsense, and, you know, isn't that just, that's just wonderful. People who are focused on, in, in, in Christianity, they're, that say we need to keep the Sabbath, or that we should worship on the Sabbath, or just different things about the Sabbath, uh, some of them are um, misinformed, some of them are deceived, some of them just, they don't understand what this is, but when you look at this, and what the Sabbath symbolizes, and what the Sabbath culminates in, and then you think, well, am I breaking God's law by not keeping the Sabbath? It, it, it gives you an entirely different perspective. That shouldn't even enter into your mind. Neither should the thought enter into your mind, okay, so Sunday is the new Sabbath. It's like, no, that's not what, Jesus didn't say anything about Sunday. He said, I am basically the Sabbath. I will give you rest unto your souls. It's not just a physical rest where you're going to have bodily, earthly rest, but no, you will have a Shabbat Sabbath for your souls. You will find rest unto your souls. Um, okay, so one more passage from Jacob Neusner. page 72 of A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. I'm just reading some passages that I highlighted in his book. At issue in the Sabbath is neither keeping nor breaking this one of the Ten Commandments. At issue here is everywhere else in the person of Jesus himself, in Christian language, Jesus Christ. And by the way, when he talks about a stunning confrontation with the Christ of faith, he talks about the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith being two different people. He'll say, yeah, people believe that Jesus resurrected, but that's the Christ of faith. That's not the Jesus of history. And so when he uses that term, it's pretty much a derogatory term, uh, saying it's not true what people think, what, what the Bible says. Okay, so what matters most of all in this simple statement, no one knows the Father except the Son. Remember, we just read it. We just read it in, in Matthew 11. In this simple statement, no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, there, startling, and scarcely a consequence of anything said before or afterward, stands the centerpiece of the Sabbath teaching. My Sabbath, or my yoke is easy, I give you rest, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, indeed the Son of Man is now Israel's Sabbath, how we act like God. Now, he's just saying, he's basically reiterating what this passage says. He's not saying, I believe it. Page 73, from the perspective of the Torah, as I understand it, only God is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, duh, you're, you're almost there. They're almost lined up. But if he would only realize what he's saying, Jesus can't be the Lord of the Sabbath because only God is, is the Lord of this. Do you realize who Jesus claimed to be? Um, okay. And one last, one last phrase. So I say to the disciple, is it really so that your master, the Son of Man, is Lord of the Sabbath? Then so, as I asked before, so I ask again, is your master God? That forms the crux of the matter. <laughs> so, um, to my knowledge, Jacob Neustner is still alive. Pray for him. Pray that the Lord will get a hold of his heart because he has looked into the New Testament and yet come away 
you know, after reading the very passage, I guarantee you, he read the passage, I thank thee, O Father, you've revealed this, you know, not unto the wise and prudent, but unto babes, and hidden it from everybody else. Does he realize that, uh, anyway, okay. Oh, I have a reference sheet. I want to read you some, some passages from, from the scripture, okay? Kind of a palate cleanser from reading what this guy says. Romans 10, 4 and 5, for Christ, listen to this, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Does, does that include the Sabbath? Yes. yes, it does. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. Galatians 3.19, wherefore then serveth the law? What's the point of the law then? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2 says, For he is our peace, who hath made both one Jew and Gentile, and broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Does that include the Sabbath? Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God and one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Uh, there's a passage in Acts 15, talks about what the uh, council there in Jerusalem decided should be lawful for the Gentiles. And it says, um, we write unto them that they abstain from pollution of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from things blood, uh, and from blood. The Sabbath is not included in there. And that's just kind of a side note. Colossians 2. Oh, this is, this, is, this is a very good one. Colossians 2, verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath. Okay? And the word days is in italics there. It's talking about specifically of the Sabbath. Let no man judge you according to the Sabbath. That's not saying, you know... Uh, don't let people judge you that you keep the Sabbath. Don't let people judge you that you don't, is what it's saying. Because listen to the next phrase. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Amen. Do you know that scripturally, according to the New Testament, that the Sabbath, not just the tabernacle and the Passover and different things about the Day of Atonement, but also specifically, according to this passage, specifically the Sabbath is a shadow of Christ. Why is, why is nine out of the Ten Commandments reiterated and recommanded for the believer in the New Testament, as Mark mentioned, as the law of Christ or the royal law as it's known? Why is one of those, specifically the Sabbath, left out? Because thou shalt not kill does not picture Christ. Thou shalt not commit adultery does not picture Christ. Uh, thou shalt not covet does not picture or is not fulfilled in the true form of Christ. But... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? That had a separate, specific, different purpose that is specifically fulfilled in Christ. And that's biblical. The Sabbath is a shadow of Christ, according to Galatians chapter, uh, or I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 2. Um, actually, wait, no, that's the wrong reference. It's Romans 14. Romans 14. Uh, oh, wait, no, that, I'm sorry. It was Colossians 2. The next one is Romans 4.19. I have my references written in the wrong place. Okay. Um, Romans 14, uh, verses 4 through 9. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? 
To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord he doth not regard it. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord. And he that giveth God thanks, and give, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not to the Lord, uh, he, he eateth not and giveth God thanks. For none of us live to himself, and no man dieth to himself. For whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Okay, that gets that um, point across. Okay, and one last passage from the epistles, Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, and I'm just going to read this here. Listen to this. With everything that we've just looked at in mind, Paul's words to the church at Galatia, but now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. And so Paul's response here, you got a question? Paul's response here to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4 is that their keeping of these different laws and rituals, times, years, days, and other things, you know, um, what they were allowed and weren't allowed to do, they're putting that back as a weak and beggarly element that is a shadow in place of the real thing, which is Christ, which fulfills that. And he says, I'm afraid of you because you're kind of falling back into these things. What about Well, there are feasts and festivals commanded in Scripture, but we don't, you know, there's a difference between saying, I'm going to celebrate the Passover and saying, I have to, I have to keep the Passover. I have to do it or else I'm going to be in trouble with God. You know what I'm saying? He kept the Passover. I was just wondering, uh, Christians, of course, they don't observe those days. Some do. Some do out of, out of um, wanting to learn and educate and be edified and glorify the Lord through those things. And some, believe it or not, specifically in the Messianic movement, they do those things out of fear, really, um, being in bondage under the law. There's some that say, Oh, well, this is, um, you know, the Day of Atonement or, 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 or Passover. And these are believers, and they're saying, this is, this is a high Shabbat. This is a high Sabbath. And I can't flip my light switch today, or I can't, you know, eat certain kinds of foods today. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a very tense, a very burdensome set of rules and laws that God says, and here, you know, in the previous passage in Colossians chapter 2, or no, in Romans chapter 14, rather. In Romans chapter 14, uh, Paul says, you know, one man esteems every day alike. One man esteems one day higher than others. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. Well, I'm, I'm just asking that we're not bound by those. Correct. That's all. That's really what I was asking. Even except maybe the, what do the Christians call it? Easter. Uh, that's a Resurrection Sunday. We ought to celebrate Resurrection Sunday. If we don't, there's something wrong. But it's not, you know, 
it's not in the same way of, in the Old Testament economy, where people had to do certain things and keep certain holy days in order to be right with God. We're not, we're not in that way. We're not in that instance. Now, Paul says you have liberty in certain occasions to do certain things, but you are in no way, we're not in bondage anymore. Why do you suppose Christianity basically, that's what I know about it, did away with those requirements? It has to do with the church becoming more Gentile and less and less Jewish, and then there were those that were false Christians that came in and purposefully eradicated any semblance to Jewish faith or background or culture or context. They tried to erase it all from the scripture. And so you have things like Easter instead of Resurrection Sunday or Pesach for Passover. Um, but anyway, um, yes, we are, not, we are not obligated to do those things. Like for instance, you know, um, and this is separate, this is an extra biblical thing, but I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Hanukkah, okay? Ha Hanukkah occurred in the time period between the Old Testament and New Testament. And we celebrated it at, at, at my house, but we celebrate a little bit differently than the Jewish people do. I mean, we'll light a candle every one of those eight nights, but we'll give thanks to the Lord for something he did that year for each one of the candles. And almost every single year, we forget it like a night or two or three, you know, and we have to make up for it and light four candles on one night or whatever. But you can imagine that, um, not necessarily in that instance, but in, in other Jewish holidays, whether it's the Jewish people that are keeping that thing or whether it is a Christian that feels like they need to keep it, there's a sense of fear. There's a sense of, oh, I need to do this right or else. And, 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 and that's what Paul's saying, I'm afraid of you. That I've bestowed labor upon you in vain. You know, um, if you've been begun by faith, are you now made perfect by uh, the law? God forbid. So um, anyway, okay, let's see if we can finish that. Does that answer your question at least partially? Okay, praise the Lord. Okay, um, all right, so back on our last page, okay. And I ask the question, when, when Jesus says in Matthew 12, verse 28 through 30, come, upon me, uh, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. You shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke, is easy, my, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I ask the question, have, have you experienced this? Are you experiencing it now? And this is something where in, 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 in the Jewish faith, I mean, they had the Sabbath as far as a day of rest but it was so shallow compared to what it pictured. And now, you know, like for instance, we talk about on the Passover. Have you guys all been to a Passover Seder in the past, showing Messiah in the Passover or any kind of Passover Seder? Okay, you guys remember the pillow for the leader? Okay, what is the pillow? The, the pillow for the leader, oftentimes when those four famous questions are asked, on this night, why is this night different than all other nights, and so on. Why on this night do we recline, is one of the questions. And I have a picture of, of one of those pillows, and it says in Hebrew, why on this night do we recline? Well, the thing is, in, in, in slavery, in Egypt, if they ever did sit down, ever, they were like this. Because their taskmaster was going to say, get up, go build me some bricks, build me some pyramids, build me some monuments, some sphinxes, or you know, whatever it might be. And they couldn't really ever sit down. And if they did, they had to be on the edge of their seat. What are you doing sitting down? But guess what happened when they were free in Egypt? <sighs> they could do this. They could recline. And that's a symbol of the freedom that we have 
in Christ. Freedom not from daily life, not freedom from even necessarily the law, but freedom from our slavery into sin. And so we have new life in Christ. We have freedom in Christ. And when he says, you shall find rest unto your souls, it's like analogous or parallel to being set free from the Egyptian slavery. And we should, we should realize that. We should realize that we don't, we don't have to toil. We don't have to fear. We don't have to stress out because he's paid it entirely. And he loves us. And he cares for us. And if, God forbid, as we do daily, most likely sinning, we have an advocate with the Father, a mediator to come to and to bring us back into fellowship, daily fellowship communion with the Father by the blood of Christ if we confess our sins and, and uh, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And so we have this, this rest in Christ. Um, okay. Now, back to John 5, and we're almost done. John 5. Let's look at... Um, okay, you think about Jesus telling the man on the Sabbath day, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He had a purpose in doing that. And we've seen his purpose, kind of, from another passage. Look back at verse number 15. Um, the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Then in verse 18, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath, or as we've found out from the Greek, had continually been destroying or um, making, uh, what's the word that I had there? Starts with an I. Invalidating the Sabbath. Um, but also that he said God was his father, making himself equal with God. You see, in these occasions that we find Jesus having a, a, a controversy, making a controversy, having to do with the Sabbath, it almost inevitably leads back to him being God. And so when he comes to this man, he knows this man has been in this case for 38 years, and oh, it's the Sabbath day. He purposefully decides to heal this man on the Sabbath day. And not only that, he says, you know what? Take up your bed and walk. <laughs> Why can he do that? How can he do that? Because he's God. And the Sabbath is a picture of he himself. And so when we see Jesus' answer, he even brings up his oneness, his unity with the Father. And so... Jesus' claim of God and his Father made him equal with God. In John 10, we'll find that he says, I and my Father are one. In John 8, before Abraham was, I am. And in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the conclusion. All right, here it is. Did anybody peek ahead of time and they know the answer? Okay. The name of this place, Bethesda. Have you guys, anybody here ever heard of chesed? What? Chesed. 
H-E-S-E-D, chesed. Okay, chesed in the Bible, it's a wonderful word. Um, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his chesed endures forever. His mercy, okay? It's also translated in some places as loving kindness. It's one of uh, my favorite Hebrew words. It's a wonderful, wonderful word. But there's something very strange about this word. The name of this place, Bethesda, has two meanings. House of Chesed, okay, is, is, is what we call it. House of Chesed, Bethesda. Loving kindness, mercy, and grace, but it is also shame and reproach. Proverbs 25.10, Chesed is translated as shame and reproach. Proverbs 14.34, listen to this. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. The word reproach is chesed. Chesed is an amazing word. It has two meanings, and these two meanings are opposite of each other. But listen to this. This place, Bethesda, it's a place of shame. These people that have been you know, in infirmities for years, lame and impotent folk, lying there. What a scene that must have been to behold. Those five different porches just full of bodies lying there. It's a place of shame. It's a place of reproach. But when Jesus comes, it's a place of grace. Whatever your need is, and I don't know what your needs are tonight aside from what we've prayed about, whatever your need is, he can meet it. And probably not in the way that you think. That man, when Jesus came to him and said, will you be made whole? The man said, well, I need to be put in the water first. Can somebody help me? I don't have somebody to lower me into the water. Whatever your need is, sometimes we get in the mindset of that impotent man. And we think, like for instance, when I had my gallbladder problems and it was going on for like six months not knowing what was wrong, you know, uh, I was thinking I need to have something taken care of now. But Jesus wanted me to go through some stuff for a couple of months and figure some stuff out and, and, and show me his glory and his provision and his grace. And so whatever your problem is, don't be thinking of how can I solve this or how can Jesus help me solve this, okay? How can Jesus help me get through this problem? It's how can I give this entirely to Jesus and just let him take control? I hate those, you know, God is my co-pilot things. I want to get one of those God is my co-pilot bumper stickers and cross out the word co. <laughs> you know, that's what it should be. He doesn't need a co-pilot. Um, okay. Um, anybody... Discussion, comments, questions about anything we've looked at? Lord willing, when we get back together next time, we'll pick it up in John chapter 5, verse 19. Praise the Lord. Now, yes, sir. When it says, uh, before Abraham was, I am, is that the same word they used when he's talking, when God gave him his name in the book? Well, it would have been, it would have been um, in English it is, but it would have been you know, in a different language when Jesus spoke it to them. But when, when he said that to them, their response was immediately, immediately they took up stones. So I would say yes, and they knew it. Because as soon as he said, before Abraham was, I am, we're going to kill you for blasphemy because you're claiming to be God by saying, before Abraham was, I am. He doesn't say, before Abraham was, I was. <laughs> you know, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And that's purposeful. And it's, it's, it's fun to look into the scriptures and see things through a perspective of, of, of seeing Jesus doing things on purpose. Because this world does not think that Jesus did things on purpose. 
And when they say that he did something on purpose, it was by accident, <laughs> on purpose. But we know that he did things on purpose, and there's a, there's a deeper meaning. You know, whenever there's something crazy going on in the New Testament, and Jesus is involved with it, you can put it down. Just about as controversial or big of an issue as going on in that passage is about as big of a truth that Jesus is trying to teach us in that same passage. And that's what we see here in, in John chapter 5. Well, it could be. I didn't think of it that way, but it could be. Um, the, the, the reason I thought of it the way that I did is because there's no other mentioning of, of, of any of his actions other than, you know, because they said, who was it that did it, you know, um, and, and saw their indignation. But you never know. I mean, people that have been healed also have disobeyed Jesus. You know, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And, and went and told everybody, and those, so he can't come into that city anymore because he has to stay outside in the desert places because there's not enough room for him to get into the city and do anything. Um, so sometimes grateful people in their right mind and right heart have disobeyed what Jesus said. Um, I don't know. We'll have, we'll have to see when we get to heaven. I'm hoping that this man, uh, this impotent man is there. But um, we'll, have to, we'll have to see when we... Yeah, yeah. You know, I learned, I've always thought of these scriptures, you know, it's like Sabbath, what he was saying really was, Sabbath's important, but there's other things more important. Yeah, well, that's, that, that, that's another point as well um, that, that is mentioned by him, but there's also a bigger picture. And that's, I think, what he's trying to get across in these two passages here. Um, and in certain instances, in certain people, certain situations, when he's dealing with them, He'll say, which of you, when his you know, ox falls in a ditch, isn't going to pick him up on the Sabbath day? So in different situations, he responds differently. But in this situation, it was, it was purposeful, it was deliberate, it was over the top, carry your bed today so that I can show you who I am. So. Okay, well, I'll go ahead and close in prayer, and we'll pray for these refreshments. And uh, Brother Bob, our IT guy, you back there? Okay. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.